I'm Carol Speakerman, and this is Speakerman Speaks Retail, presented by MarketScale. Hey everyone, it's Carol, and welcome to episode 18 of Speakerman Speaks Retail, where we navigate retail from now to next through my latest retail insights and interviews with retail experts who are charting the course. I'm here to help all kinds of retail-focused companies land big B2B programs and cut through all the clutter through my latest retail trajectories. These are themes that I'm constantly creating, connecting, and mapping across all kinds of retail categories, business models, and touch points. And in every episode, we talk about how you can harness them to grow your retail business. So this unprecedented year of retail is finally winding down. Or you could say it's getting ready to wind back up because we've got some great news that vaccines are on the way. We have to be careful about this because as much as we've all wanted to know the timelines for a turnaround, we want to be realistic about that. And you also can't underestimate the complexity of what it's going to take for everything to come together. But how cool is it that retail is going to play such a major role in making all this happen? Retailers like Walgreens, Walmart, Costco, Kroger, and others are going to be right on the front line of literally getting folks vaccinated. But I think the best news is that the psychological benefits of just knowing that there's a solution in sight should kick in even more quickly. That's going to stoke that all-important consumer confidence as the year winds down, and I think it's going to create some real momentum going into 2021. I mentioned confidence, and that's going to be a major thread for what we're going to talk about today. Retailers have been exhibiting major confidence this year. If COVID has taught retailers one thing, it's that waiting for others to go first or just sitting on the sidelines isn't going to work. For some, it's been a bit of a forced effort, but for many others, they were confidently pursuing acquisitions, they were building up their convenience arsenals, branching out into solutions and services, all of that before COVID. But one of the biggest drivers of this confidence is our trajectory today, portfolio power. Retailers pulling together ranges of options from multiple sources to attack opportunities rather than that old model of just settling on one or two options and hoping everything's going to work out. This portfolio approach is proliferating across retail on multiple fronts. It marks a profound change in how business is going to be done going forward, and it directly impacts how you're going to position for retail opportunities. So let's take a look at some of the ways that these portfolio approaches and portfolio power is manifesting right now, where it's going next, and how it changes the way you work. Last mile delivery is probably the biggest example of portfolio power at work. You've got companies like Instacart making deals with all kinds of retailers that compete directly with one another. And you've got retailers pulling in multiple providers to solve that convenience conundrum that we talked about in episode five. As we talked about in episode two, they're buying, building, and bridging their way to creating these service portfolios. Walmart just bought select assets of Joy Run, which deploys what they call runners to deliver groceries. But Walmart also uses companies like Postmates and Roadie, not to mention the way that they're harnessing the scale of their own store teams to deliver groceries as part of their internal Spark program. Now you've got Walmart hooking up with yet another third-party provider, Neuro, so that they can get out in front of autonomous vehicle delivery. But Walmart's portfolio just keeps expanding, and in some cases even contracting, because along the way they parted ways with companies like Uber and Skipcart. So it's a very dynamic, expanding, and contracting portfolio proposition. 7-Eleven has also ramped up its delivery portfolio with Uber Eats, Grubhub, Instacart, Postmates, DoorDash, Google, and Favor. 
That's seven providers cobbled together to make sure that consumers can get everything from beef jerky to cold medicine delivered within about 30 minutes from a convenience operator with over 8,500 locations in the U.S. So just like any investment portfolio, these assets are going to be bought and sold. Some are going to be held. Some are going to be pruned. Some are going to offer a temporary payoff. Others are meant to stick around and be a longer-term play. Either way, it's really different from the way retailers looked at things before. Before, it was all about limiting their options, going all in and making big bets on one or two providers, and just calling it a day. But it's very tempting to portray a lot of this portfolio building as being reactionary, that retailers have to cobble all this together, or they're not going to have the coverage they need, or they're not going to be prepared to manage this rush to online shopping that we've all been talking about. This portfolio approach isn't just limited to these emergency situations. You see it at work across the entire enterprise. Retailers are building portfolios of data capabilities. They're augmenting their in-house resources with multiple outside partnerships and acquisitions. You see it in the brand arena, too. I mean, have you noticed that brand exclusives are a lot less common than they used to be? Retailers just aren't as hung up on exclusives because diversification in those portfolio plays and having a more dynamic environment is much more viable these days. And at the same time, you've got brands exercising their permission to be in many places. They're selling in all kinds of different channels. They're doubling down on direct-to-consumer. And for the most part, retailers are cool with that because it increases the value of those brands wherever they're sold. On the private brand front, retailers like Target and Walmart have done away with brands that have driven tons of volume in the past and replaced them with completely new offerings. In some cases, they're adding many more brands on top of it. Target's been particularly aggressive on the brand front, and it's really paid off for them. Not only are they navigating the COVID crisis really well, they've executed a very impressive turnaround during COVID, and their numbers look really good these days. But it's all about balancing a constantly evolving portfolio of private, proprietary, national, and acquired brands and augmenting all of it with those brand partnerships that they've always been known for. But here, too, this is a very different approach from the days when a single lifestyle brand would do heavy lifting across all kinds of categories and when retailers in general just favored a less is more philosophy and they were striving for long-term brand stability rather than having this more dynamic environment. But you also see it on the acquisition front, where retailers, particularly in the grocery space, are consolidating and buying up local or regional players, like Ahold just acquiring Fresh Direct, not only giving Ahold entree into the New York metro area with a recognized brand, but also adding a valuable digital asset to the Ahold portfolio. So the acceleration in acquisitions is a big part of this portfolio power that we're going to talk some more about. What's different is that instead of just dissolving these brands into the mothership when they're acquired, that old model, the portfolio model is all about keeping those brands intact and distinct. That's a big part of their value, the name itself, and how various banners and brands resonate in particular markets. Building and managing a portfolio of separate complementary banners is being favored over letting them fade away into obscurity. So why the shift to portfolios? Why the shift from few to many, from stable to dynamic, and particularly at a time when you think that retail needs a little bit of stability? There are three main reasons why portfolio power is going to continue to proliferate. So let's look at them one by one. First of all, agility. Having multiple options and not having to rely on a single resource just means more flexibility. 
Portfolio companies, whether they're retailers or brand marketers, can flex resources between brands based on how they're faring and the consumer segments and dynamics that particular brands address. And boy, has this been important during the COVID crisis, where retailers suddenly found themselves having to shift product assortments, category strategies, and brand preferences on a dime. With solutions and services, one resource can take up the slack from another when you have a portfolio, or they can jump in when particular expertise is called for, or when you do have these surges and new behaviors that particular capabilities can address. The second incentive for portfolio power is visibility. Those diverse delivery portfolios that we talked about ensure not just that retailers have coverage, but that shoppers even know that certain convenience capabilities are even available to them. The platforms themselves play a role in driving awareness and onboarding consumers. For example, if shoppers are used to working with Instacart, they may find out about a new retail partnership through the Instacart platform. The platforms themselves play a big role in driving visibility. The more tentacles that are extended, the greater likelihood that various consumer groups are going to gain visibility into these options and then get pulled into retailers' platforms. A big reason for portfolio power is ingenuity. Portfolios in many cases become a kind of brain trust where the collective intelligence becomes much more powerful than any one component or any single contributor. Going into 2021, portfolio approaches and portfolio power is going to continue to gain steam, and the portfolios themselves are only going to become more dynamic because even though we do see a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel right now, plenty of companies are still struggling and they're looking for options. The ones that are doing really well are looking to build their portfolios of services, solutions, and brands to ensure their long-term success as things start to turn around. So you combine those strugglers with the strivers, and you'll start to see that the acquisition market is definitely going to stay hot, and the rise in non-traditional partnerships and portfolio plays is going to be full on. Let's talk about how this plays into your strategy when you're positioning for retail opportunities, how you can leverage the power of portfolios and own your own portfolio positioning rather than being caught off guard by it. Here are a few strategies that you can plug in right now. Timing and planning. These are big components of portfolio positioning. I encourage my clients to position their brand solutions or services as being part of a portfolio right from the start. Because despite everything we've talked about, I still see lots of companies taking a zero-sum, winner-takes-all approach to business development. Then they're trying to quickly change course when they realize that they're going to be part of a collective. The problem with that plan is that you're not really owning your contribution from the beginning. You're treating your portfolio position as a kind of consolation prize when it was their plan all along. And when I say there, I'm talking about your prospect or your customer. When you make this shift to early stage portfolio positioning, it changes everything. It ends up improving your overall sales and marketing effort because portfolio positioning requires much more precision. Portfolio positioning requires you to define where you play and the specific value that you bring rather than generalizing or, heaven forbid, waiting to see what they decide to carve out for you. Using the three-part framework that we've already talked about is a great way to start to align their portfolio benefits and goals with your unique portfolio value. So do you bring agility, visibility, or ingenuity to the program or project? Maybe more than one. Maybe you even bring all three. Going back to buy, build, or bridge, portfolio positioning also allows you to get clearer and more realistic about your long-term goals and your potentials. For example, are you a bridge resource that links your customers to a key capability, consumer group, or market? 
Once those bridges are built, what are the incentives for your customers to stay with you rather than shifting to a build strategy to take things in-house? In some cases, retailers use these bridge resources and partnerships so that they can get really good at something and then take it on themselves. How can you hedge against that? Or if you think of it as an eventuality, how can you plan for it? Are you positioning for acquisition as a buy opportunity? Think about why they would buy you instead of somebody else in the portfolio. Are you willing to go from being a bridge resource to becoming a buy? What would that path look like for you? Has your prospect or customer already built something that might tread on your territory? And if so, how can you position as a value add to what they've already built? So this requires research into their buy, build, or bridge strategies, and also research into who or what else might be part of the portfolio that you're shooting to become a part of. Maybe it's private brands, but if so, you're going to need to dig deeper and find out more about them. Maybe your competitors are in the mix. And if that's the case, what do those companies honestly do really well and what are their weaknesses? What sets you apart from them, but also how do you complement one another? Portfolio positioning changes your relationship to the other assets in their portfolios. So you're better off not even thinking of them as competitors, but instead as part of a collective and even as your collaborators. As a portfolio player, your value broadens beyond just what you do or what you sell to how well you play with others and even how you make them more successful. So portfolio positioning transforms your case studies in very much the same way. You're going to be highlighting your collaborative skills and approaches. You're going to be more focused on showcasing project management and process. If you're really good at it, you might even be in a position to dictate where others play, including your competitors, because you're so sure about where you play and what your clear strengths are. So are you ready to start making your portfolio plays? I hope so. I hope you're feeling much more confident than ever about doing just that going into 2021. So thank you for listening today. I've got some exciting trajectories and interviews planned for you up ahead, and we're going to do a special wrap-up for our next episode that is going to squeak in right before you crack open the champagne on the 31st. And in the meantime, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or ideas. You can ping me at carol at speakermanretail.com or hit my site at speakermanretail.com to check out more insights, to subscribe to my updates, and get the latest on all kinds of events and other happenings that are cranking up for next year. I'll see you next time and wishing you a very happy holiday in the meantime.